I'm John Stanton, and this is The 30. So this week I figured uh, we should try to sit down and try to talk a little bit about what we're doing at the Save Journalism Project since the podcast is kind of associated with Save Journalism Project. Um, and to do that, I've got uh, Nick Charles and Laura Bassett with me, uh, two journalists that um, have gone through layoffs and the turbulation uh, that is uh, that is our industry. And we thought we'd sit down and kind of talk about our histories a little bit, what ha- what's happened to us, why we decided to do this project and get involved in, in trying to stop the the layoffs that are going on and, and, and killing American journalism. So uh, I will start first with Laura, who is my co-founder of the Save Journalism Project. So Hi, John. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was a senior politics reporter at HuffPost, um, for I, I worked there for ten years, and uh, I was laid off in January um, on, on the big day. Verizon made us cut something like ten percent of our staff. BuzzFeed had layoffs. I think maybe the same day or the next day. Next day. Next day. Um, and it, there was just a huge wave of layoffs that week. Vice, I think, also had layoffs that week. And, um, you know, as I often say, I, I had never really paid – as a politics reporter, we were sort of insulated from the financial side of, of the industry or having to think about how our publications made money. And at HuffPost especially, we had – we're a huge global uh, newspaper, massive amounts of traffic. Um, my stories were doing great. Um, I was writing long features and breaking news, and I absolutely did not see the layoff coming at all. I was um, just completely shocked by it. Uh, and, um, so it wasn't until after being laid off that I kind of started thinking about how, um, how journalists, how newspapers and, and digital publishers make their money and why they're not able to survive anymore. And, um, as we've seen in the past couple of months, newspapers shutting their doors, um, the most, Surprising one to, to me was the New Orleans Times Picayune, my sort of hometown paper that I grew up reading. Um, sort of went under and, and got folded into the Baton Rouge Advocate, and the whole staff got laid off. Um, so as we're seeing more and more of these layoffs, I've been trying to understand what are the forces that are that are making it so difficult for journalism to survive. Um, and so, yeah, John and I started this project to kind of raise awareness of the ways in which it's actually big tech companies, tech the duopoly of, of Google and Facebook plus um, Apple and Amazon that are really um, siphoning off ad revenue from uh, the content creators uh, and making it impossible for us to uh, make a living. That's a pretty good summation of <coughs> the terrible suck that is <laughs> what's going on. Uh, Nick, you've been around a long time. Um, yeah, I've been around a little You've been laid off once, guys, more than once, right? More than once. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, my thing was I've become part of the, what I call the permalance group, which is that, you know, we don't just freelance, we are permanent freelancers mm-hmm. because we always have to keep working because you never know if the job you have is a job that's going to last. And that's kind of sad. And um, a lot of journalists, you know, over the years have seen and heard about the layoffs, and then you get a call, do you know somebody here? I'm trying to get a gig here. And so the big people who are not prepared, to like Laura's point, who don't see it coming, get blindsided because they haven't planned for anything else because they're doing good work. And you know we know about getting <coughs> separated and having to leave if you don't do good work, but a lot of folks are doing good work and still have to leave and still get laid off. And the question is, well, what the hell is happening? 
and the bottom line is not that distra- is that that terrible. So why are the people who are suffering and people who are actually making the work, the people who are doing the content, people who are doing the coverage, the, the journalists who the, com- the public rely on, even though they don't know it sometimes, to cover things that they otherwise would not know about. Right. And particularly for African American um, audiences, you know, there's lots of stuff that gets covered, but there's also a lot of stuff that's fluff. There's a lot of entertainment. There's a lot of music, and there's a lot of culture. But there's a lot of news that needs to be covered, and now it's not being covered. And there's some people who don't miss it, and there's some people who do miss it. But everybody should be worried that it doesn't exist anymore. Well, I think you know one of the things that I um I found most frustrating, honestly, about what's been happening the last, like, probably two or three years is about five or six years ago, seven years ago, I'd say right around when BuzzFeed, when I started at BuzzFeed in 2012, 2013, I think the conversation around diversification of news newsrooms really picked up within the industry. And BuzzFeed worked very hard to try to, to diversify. And one of the big parts of that that I found uh, frustrating at the beginning was that uh, so much of that was, well, let's hire a bunch of black people to write about race. Let's hire a bunch of women to write about women. But like that, like discrimination against black people, discrimination against women. And then over the last probably three years, that has shifted and you saw people hiring black reporters or LGBT reporters or whatever to cover taxes, to cover the White House or whatever. And that they were bringing they were not just writing about the issues specific to whatever um, you know minority or group that they might belong to. They were writing about that, but they were also just bringing how they, as a, as a person of color or uh, someone who's LGBT or, or has um, a disability or whatever, brings, bringing their lens to how they're covering it. And that sheds light on how tax policy or education policy or health policy affects those communities. But it also helps, I think, everybody, including white people, um, to better better understand what's going on in the world, right? And the layoffs, because, you know, last hired, first fired is often the case, um, have resulted, I think, in a contraction of some of that, which is deeply discouraging, frankly, because I think when I started on the Hill 20 years ago, um, the almost the entire press corps in Capitol Hill were old white guys, right? There were a handful of women like Mary McGrory and a few others that were still that were there, but they they were literally two or three of them or four of them, you know. And then there were the big layoffs that happened after Craigslist came along, and there was a contraction of the congressional press corps, and then it sort of grew back again, and it got filled in with a lot of women and people of color and things like that. People like that were not just straight white dudes, and suddenly straight white dudes, we found ourselves in the minority in the Capitol Hill press corps, which is remarkable. And you saw a fundamental shift in how we as an industry was covering Congress, right? A lot less of the um, accepting of like the back room kind of nonsense. There was a lot less uh, being okay with like letting people do sort of sketchy things on the side or whatever, because that was just sort of how the process worked. And a lot more questioning of why the process worked and the way it worked and who it was that was being, who's getting the benefits from that. And I think it's, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm a straight white guy talking a lot about this. Why don't you guys talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, no, I think, you know, it, it's historical. You know, black folks got into newspapers in the late 1960s because of the riots and white folks couldn't go into Watts and they couldn't go into Harlem and they couldn't go into the South Side of Chicago. And that's how he got high. And the Kerner Commission came out and said, oh, you need people to come and cover this. This is going on. And so they got hired in the 70s and 80s. There was a push. And then there was a, contra- a contraction. And then there was a push. And then everybody was going to be covering 
you know, to your point, I want to hire a black person to cover black stuff, and then black people are like, well, I, I, I'm an MBA, and I want to cover economics, and I right. text a lot, I want to do tax, and you know, I like country music, and I want to do music, <laughs> as opposed to just doing quote-unquote black stuff. And so there's this kind of strum and drag where people are pulling and pushing what they want, but at the end of the day, if you are, if the organizations themselves are constricting, those things go first. And those people go first because they got hired for last, or, 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 or and and also that thing is not that considers extra stuff because then the meat and the bones is just you know politics and news you can use, um, and so that's the difficult thing is that you get sometimes you get hired for one thing you're doing something else and you're doing it well and still your job could be under pressure to disappear tomorrow. I think that's a really good point. I I was. Uh covering sort of, I guess, women's issues, the, the intersection of, of women's issues in politics at HuffPost. Um, and I guess there were two of us doing that. And so I think when they made the cuts, it was like, well, we've got two people covering gender and politics, so one can go. And it's like, do you know how big of an umbrella that is and how many things we were covering and like how much room there is for two people in a newsroom to cover something like that? It's not just a sideline or some like silly, you know, niche issue like we are half the population you know um so yeah i think it's i think it's true that the, that we were considered um the expendables well i think the, like the, the work you were doing i thought was part of this also this fundamental change in how things are being written about it but a lot of the way that you wrote about like um reproductive health and, and abortion issues it stopped being about um so much of the frame prior to that was, you know, well, what what will Democrats be willing to give up in order to, you know, protect Roe? And, and, and you know, like this sort of presumption that there was that, that movement on things had to go towards the right. And then, it, it, you know, the way you wrote about it and the way I think a lot of women were writing about it was much more of a shift towards what is it that we how do we protect with the rights of women, right? Right. As opposed to this sort of like, what do we do to make Republicans happy or conservatives happy? It became, it changed the frame fundamentally about how yeah. it, was, it was reported. And I think that is, you've seen that throughout the country, but then you see the, like local news uh, cuts and then suddenly, um, well, it feels like suddenly there are these states that come up with a new abortion law that gets that's about to be passed. And everybody feels like they've been jumped, right? Like they have no idea this is coming. Well, the reason they don't know it's coming is because there's three reporters in that state that cover the state house, and they are doing the best they can, but that's you know preposterous, right? It's impossible to believe that they're going to successfully cover that. But there are people like Laura is the canary in the coma, and she's the person going, "Hey, wait a minute, this is not as important as what I'm covering," <clears throat> and the audience from, and the people who are being affected is this audience. The audience that she was talking to wasn't wasn't being spoken to, mm-hmm. but the other audience is being affected. It's like you know before the crash of 2007, 2008. There are folks, and I, I was one of them, was going like, you know, my sister bought a house. I'm like, my sister should not be able to afford a house. But nobody was going to tell folks, mostly African-American or people of color, that you can't buy into the American dream, even though the mortgages they were getting were really ridiculous. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And But nobody was covering that because they were like, oh, now they have access to people. Black people always complain about redlining, I can't get loans. Now they can get loans. Yeah, but look at the loans they're getting. Yeah. And if something goes south, this yeah. is what happens. And that's what happened. Right. Yeah. I think you know to your to your point about like the 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 uh, those areas being cut like at BuzzFeed when the layoffs happened at BuzzFeed they cut the national security desk they cut the LGBT desk and they cut my desk which was the uh, national affairs desk which was primarily about women uh, women's issues and um, 
immigrants and um, sexual violence, things like that, right? Which were, ironically, all of the things that really were the BuzzFeed had become known for, right? I mean, yeah. like, the LGBT desk at BuzzFeed was a huge reason why why the news side of, of uh, succeeded as much as it did, because we were one of the first like news outlets to have a that was not a LGBT specific news organization that had six or eight people that were writing about about these issues and about about these about these people like and it was refreshing to people that like you could go read these stories you know and um all those things got cut right and yeah i had a situation uh i mean the the month before i got cut i had like the most trafficked article on the site about some like why conservative men are obsessed with aoc i had some piece like that that did great and then they and then they laid me off i and i've obviously been covering reproductive health for 10 years. I mean, since the very beginning and uh, of uh, my career. And, um, and right after I got laid off was the Alabama um, passed a crazy uh, anti-abortion law. And um, I didn't have a job anymore, but I w- I'm still obviously obsessed with the issue and it's what I cover and it's what I care about. So I, I watched the live stream of the hearing and I live tweeted it. And um, when the when the bill went through, I had a tweet about it that that like went crazy viral. And um, the next day, a HuffPost reporter called me, a male HuffPost reporter who's never written about reproductive health or abortion in his life, called me and said, "I know this is ridiculous, but this morning I was assigned to aggregate your tweet." <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just. But I mean, that's also how like insane it is, right? Yeah. That's just that's bananas. No, but you, you, you think about what the moment we're in. We're in the Me Too moment, and because of people like Buzzfeed and Newsy, and some of the um, online folks who are looking at these things through different lens and have different audiences, and younger women who are not putting up with some of the, the crap that older women mm-hmm. went through. We know they went through, um, but but you know for whatever reason didn't come forward in the mass movement. Now this movement happens. You need to have the law ambassadors of the world covering that. Mm-hmm. You need to when when you know they need BuzzFeed's LGBTQ um, desk because Prop 8 in California. You need these things to exist. When you know when we when Bloomberg is doing a story on the last abortion provider in Nebraska or something, that's sad because nobody else was covering that stuff mm-hmm. up until because to your point, they were much more worried about the political football back and forth as opposed to who's being affected. And there's a huge, huge audience for those things. Those stories do really, really, people want to read about that stuff um, locally and nationally and internationally. And I think part of the problem is that it doesn't really matter at this point how much traffic you're getting. It's not translating into dollars, just to bring it back to our projects a little bit, because, um, you know, you can you can have a massively trafficked website and still Verizon wrote us off basically as a charity. Like they, they're, trying to, they're trying to sell uh, HuffPost off right now. Because they make zero money from it, um, so it's not a profitable thing anymore. Yeah, and I mean that's the you know like for us, the national desk. We <laughs> I'd been in New York like a, I don't know a week or ten days before I got laid off. I'd gone up to go meet my editors, and we'd sort of sat down at the desk, and and my editor Tina was like, you know, you guys had a fantastic year. Everybody's traffic was way way up. We had more views. Um, people were like, you know, reading through towards the to the ends of your stories, like. You know, we've done all this really great work. We had, like, my desk had, had broken the R. Kelly story, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, like, the, there was, like, a Lifetime was making a movie out of, this, out of that story. Like, there's all these crazy things going on. And she was like, we've had fantastic success. Like, the National Desk has done better work and has been more visible and had more readers um, month over month the entire year. We've done, you know, better now the last two years than we had before that. Like, and we were all really happy. And then we all get laid off. 
right? All of us got laid off. It's and insane. Yeah, right? And it's just crazy. And, we, you know, and, it's, and it wasn't because, um, you know, the people didn't care about our work. It's because there wasn't enough advertising revenue being made off the stories. That, like, we, for us, in order for us to have survived, we would have had to have preposterous amounts of traffic. Yeah. You know, because the advertising dollars from, from online advertising were shrinking. And that's, that's how you know that, like, something uh, is fucked up. Well, it's not, it, online, I worked for the most profitable magazine ever. I worked for People magazine, which made more money than every Condé Nast magazine put together. <laughs> and so at the, in the halcyon days of, of people, the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, everything went, alcohol cartings to go out at 4 o'clock, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. But then, to your point, here comes these online folks in the, in the beginning of the 2000s. Here comes Google, and Google's established. And here comes Facebook uh, in 2007 to the public afterwards in the Ivy League. And here comes these other things. And nobody saw, nobody had the vision to look for it and say, wait a minute, this could be an issue. All people saw is, oh, I can reach new audiences, not knowing the price for that new audience is that you're going to lose the advertising on the back end, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to close up your shop on your, your legacy um, publications, and then even on the online stuff, that doesn't guarantee you're going to survive. Well, there was this, I, I remember thinking, like, after the, after the, the collapse of the, of the want ads, right, and the, and the classified section, which is how newspapers had been making so much of their money, right, when that collapsed, um, there was a lot of soul searching within the industry, and I do remember vaguely hearing about it um, as a young reporter, and them sort of saying, well, we're never going to let this happen to us again, right? We're never going to get caught flat-footed again. And then they immediately started looking at the internet and said, well, but there's not enough money in, in, in re- internet revenue from, from advertising, so we really need to make sure that like our hard copies are, are still out there, right? Which was true, but wasn't going to be true, right? Like, it was, it was clear. Like, at some point newspapers are going to just not exist in a physical form. Like, that's just a reality, you know? And, and I remember my dad, I'm a, I'm a third-generation reporter, and, my, and my, the, when I went to go work for BuzzFeed, I was leaving Roll Call, which had a physical newspaper, and, you know, I said, well, I'm a little bit worried about this because I've never worked at, a, a, at an online site, right? And who the hell knows if this place is going to be around in six months? And, and uh, he was like, do you think that, like, the, um, that, the, that the newsboys that had to carry the stone tablets back in the day were pissed off when papyrus came around? He's like, hell no. He's like, they're excited. They're like, well, fuck, I don't have to carry around giant heavy stone tablets anymore where they carve out the news into it, right? Now they can put it on papyrus and take it around to people. And like, his point, I think, was, was a, a smart one, which was like, this is just a, yeah, this is a new, new technology. But what, we, but what the business side of our industry never has done well is to figure out how to stay in front of it, right? And yeah. they've, what they've done in a lot of ways, um, intentionally, they've not intentionally, but I think purposely in the, in the decisions they've made, they have allowed Google and Facebook in particular to, to, to really just strip them of, of resources. And they've never put themselves in a position, I think, to fight that. And then add on top of that, the duplicitousness of these companies. I mean, you know, I know that with HuffPost, they did a lot of pivots to this and that. Pivot and to video. Pivot to video. And I got nailed with that at BuzzFeed, you know, and, and they were lying. Facebook lied to everybody about and how we much. We invested millions into a, like, 24-hour news channel, video news channel, because we thought that was, like, the thing and just lost a ton of money on it. That was part of our financial downfall because Facebook 
lied about infl- falsely inflated their video viewers. Yeah. yeah. And then they, at the end of it, they said, my bad, and kept moving, and everybody else was left in the racket, wreckage. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's the problem is that they can always pivot to something else, but this is not their primary business. It's for, for, to you, John, for John, this is our calling. This is what you do for your family that's done. You're like, you know, I'm a third generation timber guy. That's what I do. That's what you do for journalism. For these folks, this is just a part of, a small part of their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And this was happening in the 90s with the consolidation of, of news media where bigger and bigger monopolies and, sm- and papers like papers in Detroit had to join together so they, they could use this, the physical plant to print the, 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 um, the papers. And then these things came around in terms of the, the online folks and then it became easier. Oh, now we can maximize and squeeze as much as we can. And if we don't need it, we don't need it because it's the, our primary source of business. Verizon doesn't care about about how post because that's not their primary business. Yeah, so true. And I mean, you know, like it's funny that like, people look at these tech companies like at Google or at Facebook, and I think because they see young people that have made billions of dollars off of seemingly nothing, right? I mean, you yeah. know, and. Um, and you know they they smile and they look nice and they wear sweater vests and Chuck Taylors and everyone thinks these guys are just you know they're not really going to be that bad of guys right they wouldn't really just try to destroy the universe but it should be pointed out that Mark Zuckerberg has made millions of dollars off of genocide so there's that right like yeah. he's clearly a bad human being and these companies are clearly run by greedy bad people they are the Rockefellers of of our generation right yeah, well and they're the, the robber barons the robber barons. exactly that that. Their rubber baroness that doesn't just decimate the forest, it decimates people and countries and elections and communities and families. And that's the problem is that now it's a personalized thing because we sit around this table talking about, wait a minute, not just the three of us or, you know, the people we know, there's a host of folks. I know so many folks of my generation who just walked away from journalism after spending 20 years because they're like, I can't. Either they, they didn't know how to make the next step, translate their skills, learn the new technology and the new platforms and how to use Twitter and, and Facebook and, and Snapchat and all these other things. They just didn't have the energy because they had invested so much of their lives in telling stories about communities that mattered to them. And now those communities were, were not going to get their voice anymore. And the communities might have missed them, but the companies they worked for were like, we got to go. Yeah, and then the, you know, the, the thing about it that's frustrating to me is that Google and, and Facebook um, has successfully done this. I think Snapchat has attempted to, but kind of failed to a certain degree. They've cre- they have positioned themselves as the de facto public square, right? The public square used to be an open, unowned space. At first, it was physically just the public square. And then it became, you know, kind of like the public airways, which were regulated, right? And, and newspapers were filling a sort of a piece of that, but they, they had to be sold to you in the public square, right? And newspapers have had a tradition of trying to protect the public's right to their public square. These companies essentially have overlaid themselves on top of those those spaces and are monetizing it in a way that... Um, is unregulated and extraordinarily dangerous. And I think, like to your point, for them, they see it as a way to make money off of any number of possible things that go on in the public space. But by doing that, they are also very much becoming um, a force that the founders certainly did not consider when they wrote the First Amendment. Um, but they, they are a force on the First Amendment. They are a restricting force on the First Amendment. And um, it's extraordinarily dangerous what they're doing. I mean, like, whether or not they are purposely attempting to kill off journalism um, or they know it and they don't care is really beside the point. It's happening, right? And, uh, and, and you know, 
they, they when they're told, they just sort of shrug and maybe throw like a couple million dollars at something and be like, see, look, I hired, you know, 12 reporters to go cover local stuff. Okay, well, that's great. 12 local reporters in the United States. We've that's, lost 7,200 since January. Right, yeah. right. Like, that's doing, that's doing nothing for us. Well, the, the old adage, you know, the reason I got into journalism, it was a great, my, my editor said to me, you know, what's your job is? I said, what's my job? He said, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's what your job is. Shine a light in those dark places where people are doing stuff. There's a reason it's called the sunshine law when you go into a council meeting and they don't want you there when they have closed door meetings because whatever's going on in there is not a good thing for the community and you have to find out what's going on and let them know. That's the mission. That was always supposed to be the mission. And now I feel like the mission is gone. And as long as the they're looking at Wall Street for their guidance, okay, how much is our stock up? How much money can you make by buying shares? Are they down as opposed to what are we telling people? What are we informing people about? It's always going to be the way it is now. And and the little efforts that Facebook and Google are making to sort of to quote unquote help journalism, the Facebook news tab, partnering with two hundred organizations, um, it's it's buying their silence. Like mm-hmm. these journalists now feel like because they're getting a crumb from Facebook or a crumb from Google, can't speak out about what those companies are doing to their industry. And you have to believe that that is deliberate. Well, and once again, I mean, I think this is like. One of the big problems that that I think we have had as an industry that I, I really came uh, face to face with when we when we when we got laid off was that we as journalists, because of the separation of church and state, you know, between the ad side, the money side, and the and the print and the uh, the journalism side of the journalism business, um, we never paid much. I mean, I at least I never paid any attention to what was going on over there. Right? They were making decisions about my life that I had no input into, that I I had no idea what they were doing. Um, ironically, I signed my union card for BuzzFeed unionization push the week before I got laid off. Um, yeah. Uh, um, but you know, even still like, you know, now these, like these, these news outlets, they signed up for this, this news tab nonsense with Facebook without talking to the, to the, to the workers. They didn't ask any of the employees what they thought of this deal, whether or not they thought the amount of money they were getting was an appropriate amount of money for the amount of work that they're going to have to do for it. Um, and Given the fact that, like, they made these deals before it was clear that Facebook had been purposely lying about the pivot to video numbers, it really makes me question what kind of deal did they actually get out of Facebook, right? Well, none of them were telling anybody, right? None of these companies are telling anybody how much money they're actually going to get. They're, they're singing the song that they're going to do well, but... I, I look at all of them, I think, as dead men walking. They don't know they're dead they just, they keep, because you take this money... And you think, okay, I'm going to survive. And then when the money is gone and Google and Facebook is finished with you and they've got whatever they need, you know, got the, they got some points for being philanthropic, they're done with you mm-hmm. and they're gone. And these folks understand it. You know, you, you, some, there was a story a couple of weeks ago that says, if we want to really be serious, stop taking their money. You got to stop taking their money because you can learn the tools on your own. It's all intuitive. Somebody, some, you can learn these things. You can, get your organization to a point where you can utilize them, but you don't have to rely on their financial help because they're not here to help you do journalism. No. Although, I mean, to a certain degree, you are relying on them right now. And I think that's where Congress, frankly, comes in and uh, the state the state regulators all come in because they have monopolies now. Like, Google, you can't realistically be a business um, and do your commerce online and not work with Google. 
right? You, you Google is, you have to be searchable. Your story right? has to come up in a Google search. I Every time I wrote a story, I posted it on Facebook, on Twitter. I relied on the Google search. I would post it on Instagram and it's like Facebook now owns Instagram. And we rely on those, we rely on those companies to get eyeballs on our stories, which is how we're supposed to get the traffic numbers to get the money, but then they take the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, it's the same thing with the banks. You know, people like, oh, we, we have to get a loan to get to do some, to save my money and, and retirement. But they still have to be relegate, uh, regulated. regulated, and that's exactly. what I'm saying. Regulation doesn't mean that you know they're not doing good things, yeah. or they have the potential. They, they definitely have the potential to do good things. They've changed the world. But the reality is, if they leave, if we leave them unfettered, this is what happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And th- today and tomorrow it's Laura Bassett and John Stanton, and then next week it's Daily News is gone. And if Murdoch decides she doesn't want to stop, he doesn't want to lose any more money on the New York Post, that's gone. And what do you have? The Times. You know, which is yeah. a global newspaper and not really a local newspaper. That's why we need to be loud about it, which is what we are doing. But it concerns me that all of these or- news organizations are now going to partner with Facebook. And I, w- I wonder if that will sh- shut the- shut down criticisms that otherwise would have. I mean, I'd like to believe not. But yeah. No, well, the chilling effect, there's two chilling effects. You can be scared and also you can be scared that I'm going to lose the money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that, that story you were going to publish about, you know, antitrust stuff around Google, maybe your editor comes and says, we don't need that today. Well, we look at not the, because it's not a story, but because we just got $150,000 right. for the newsroom. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, the money pressures right now on the, in, on the industry and on executives and on top editors is intense. I mean, if you look at, like, what happened with, with sports writers with this whole China, been, with the China situation, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, that was crazy, right? Like, reporters are being told not to say things about things. You know, like, the league was, like, messing with them if they asked questions about it. Like, they were yeah. being a lot no, of pressure. No, journalists, journalists were defaulting to athletes. Yeah. You can't leave it up to LeBron James to talk about what's going on in Hong Kong. Yeah. And whether he's right or wrong or you disagree or agree with me, journalists are supposed to be covering the story. There are protests going on in Hong Kong. It's almost civil war. People are suffering. You should be able to talk about that, mm-hmm. and unless you, and you know, your, your NBA could be worried about its three hundred million um, viewership in in China. Journalists something they shouldn't be worried about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, one thing that I'm trying to do with these with these episodes is I like to ask everybody uh, what their uh, advice would be to young reporters. So. Oh God! You, don't want to hear, you really don't want to hear mine because I, I taught at City College for a couple of years, and my first thing is I've all my, I'm teaching multimedia <coughs> multimedia journalism, and my first thing is go get an MBA, <laughs> go get a law degree, even if you don't want to practice law, get it. And I wasn't being I was being facetious to some extent, but it's also a business where I can't guarantee you in five years. I used to think ten years, but in five years, I think there will be a position somewhere for you, even if you're really good, if you're really great. Because the way the the structure of our businesses and and the way we are also subject to these market forces and to these tech giants, they may not be the kind of job that I got. So you know, not relatively easy, but easy enough when I got out of college. And so my whole thing, I'm looking out for you and your and your future and what family you may or may not have by telling you, hey, I love this profession. I got a good 20, 22 years out of it, but I had to turn left and do something else. You may not have the opportunity to do 22 years and turn left. Laura? My advice, similar to how uh, young people got a raw deal with with the planet because we and the boomers and everyone before them completely screwed it up and so they inherited this obligation to sort of fight for the health of the planet. Um, I think that I I, I would say that I would very much still encourage 
kids to go into journalism. I think it's as important, as vital as it has ever been, but they have to be prepared to fight for the industry in a way that previous journalists never were never told and never knew how to do. Um, they're going to have to be be prepared to go into a rough, crumbling industry and figure out how to build it back up. And and they that's what I would tell them. Yeah, that's. I think you're both right. Actually, honestly, <laughs> like diversify yourself a little bit and be prepared to do a lot of things you should not have to do. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you guys very much for joining me. Thank you so much, thank John. Thank you, John. Right. It was a pleasure. <laughs>